four. Gospel of John, chapter four. While you are turning there, I need to make one more announcement. As many of you, or at least some of you, maybe not all of you know, uh, Faye's uh, niece, Christy Clark, uh, recently passed away this last week, and it was sudden, unexpected. She was 35 years of age. Uh, They think it was probably of a heart attack. Um, So I just wanted to sort of give you an update on the funeral arrangements uh, visitation is this afternoon, beginning at 4 o'clock, from 4 to 8 at Johnson & Vaughan's. Um, and then the funeral will be tomorrow at 11. Uh, so I'm sure it will be a blessing to Faye if she can see some of you and, and hear encouraging words from some of you. And um, just would encourage you all to be in prayer for her and her family uh, because of the sudden loss of her niece. We are picking up uh, in John chapter 4 and finishing the chapter in uh, verses 43 to 54 as we've been going through John 4. We've seen Jesus' interactions with the Samaritan woman. We've seen the faith of this Samaritan, an unexpected faith that a Samaritan would receive the Jewish Messiah when they had been worshiping false gods all the while. And uh, we finished that a couple of weeks ago, and then we had John Michael as our guest preacher last week. And so this week we are picking up where we left off last time in John chapter 4. And I just want to begin reading in verse 43 and down to 54. After the two days, that is the two days that Jesus spent in Samaria, He departed for Galilee. For Jesus Himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So, when He came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed Him, having seen all that He had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So He came again to Cana in Galilee, where He had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, Come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Do you pray with me?
Lord, You have sent Your Son into the world to testify to everyone from every tribe, from every nation, from every language, from every people to testify that Your Son is sovereign and reigns over everything that we know of, including death itself. You have appointed Your Son as heir of all things. And by Your will and Your power, You have raised Him from the dead as a declaration to all that He is the King. And our King now invites the world to come to Him and to trust Him To trust every word that He speaks as a word from a Lord who is good. Father, I pray this morning that as we see the faith of this official, our faith would be strengthened. And if there is any among us who does not indeed have faith in Christ and in His words, You, O God, would have mercy and grant to that person faith that results in eternal life. Father, teach us Your ways and teach us what is pleasing to You, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think one of the things that has become clear as we've moved through the Gospel of John, and one of the things we will see over and over again in this Gospel, is that you cannot read the Gospel of John and miss the absolute importance John places on faith. His entire Gospel was written to demonstrate This very purpose. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That's what John wants of every person who comes into contact with his gospel. That they would believe unto eternal life. Faith is of utmost importance to John because it is only through faith that one receives everlasting life. But, John is not concerned about any old faith. Faith for the sake of faith to John is meaningless. It's amazing to me how often, not only in the unbelieving culture, but even within the larger church culture that we currently experience, people are so quick to commend faith just for the sake of having faith. People will identify themselves as a man of faith or a woman of faith. That's something that is to be commended. Oprah Winfrey 
loves to talk about having faith. All of the New Age spiritual gurus love to talk about the importance of having faith. Deepak Chopra loves to talk about having faith. It's often said many times after some tragedy happens that nothing else in the world matters truly so long as a person has faith. It doesn't matter the exact content of the faith. It doesn't matter what the object of that faith is. It's just good. And this is culturally accepted. It's just good to have faith. But I ask, is simply having faith for its own sake, of any true benefit? Is faith, for its own sake, of any true benefit? Well, consider this illustration I I recently heard. Let's say I were to go to a body of water in the middle of winter. And on that body of water, there is a thin sheet of ice covering it going from one end to the other. Now, I'm a man of great faith. I have all the faith in the world. In fact, if you were to add up all of the measures of faith that are around this world and place them in me, that would be the faith that I had. You could say I have a super faith. And this super faith is so strong that I have faith that as soon as I step onto that thin layer of ice, it will hold me up and I will not sink, fall through the ice into freezing water. I'm going to be able to walk right across it because I believe and my faith is indeed strong. Now friends, I can have all the faith in the world. I can have faith that not only moves mountains, but allows me to walk on thin sheets of ice. But if the only thing that separates me from drowning in freezing cold water is a thin layer of ice and the faith that I have that I will never sink, the faith that I have may indeed lead to my death. See what I'm saying? Let us say, on the other hand, that the ice was no mere thin layer. The ice was ten feet thick. Well, in that case, I could have faith as small as a mustard seed. And I could walk out on that ice with that tiny bit of faith that the ice will hold me up and I'll make it safely across. The possession of any kind of faith is not what John is commending in his Gospel. The possession of true faith is what he commends. And true faith is true not because of the person who possesses it, not because of the nature of faith itself, but because of its object. 
Because of who it is placed in. Faith in Jesus. That He is the Christ. That He is the Son of God. And that through Him, I can receive eternal life. And not end up in hell. Not end up facing judgment and wrath that is due to me because of my sin. Faith in Jesus. That is the faith that brings promise and brings salvation. But not only does John want us to have faith in Jesus, he wants us to understand the difference between true faith in Christ and its counterfeits. Already in John chapter 2, Several months ago, we've seen that every kind of faith in Jesus is not a good faith. We are told in John chapter 2 that many, many believed in His name when they saw the signs He was doing in Jerusalem. But Jesus on His part did not entrust Himself to them. Many believed in Him. Jesus Himself did not believe in them because He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for He Himself knew what was in man. People were believing in Jesus. Yet John is saying their faith was false. It was not true. John wants us to see this kind of counterfeit faith so that our own will not be false. And he's continuing with this emphasis in our text this morning. This is a theme, friends, that we see all throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus is very frequently performing miracles. People are believing in Him because of what they are seeing. But as soon as He begins to teach, as soon as He begins to proclaim who He truly is, that He is the Sovereign Lord, the Son of God, as soon as He begins to teach the things that are hard for the human flesh to receive, many of the disciples who believed in Him left. John wants us to understand the difference between true and false faith. And this theme is continuing in our text this morning. In verses 43-45, to we find Jesus leaving the Samaritans and heading to Galilee. He's heading back to his hometown. But notice what John says about this journey home. He says in verse 44, For Jesus Himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. John is telling us that Jesus... He's going back home. But when he goes home, he's not going to a people who believe in him. He's going to a people who don't believe. In fact, John will later tell us in John chapter 7, verse 5, that not even his own brothers believed in him. The people of Galilee had watched him grow up. 
They knew his family. They knew where he came from. And therefore, they could not accept that Jesus was the Son of God, much less that he had come down from heaven. They had seen his origins. They had seen him grow up. They had seen him grow wise. They had seen him grow in stature. This can't be one who has come from heaven. And so Jesus, we find, is going into unbelieving territory, which is his own hometown. But notice also what John then adds. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Welcomed him. Having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Now, friends, when John wrote verse 45 about the Galileans, that they welcomed him, he didn't forget what he wrote in verse 44. Verse 44 is telling us how we should understand this welcoming of Jesus. It was not a welcoming of Jesus that was a result of faith. It was not as though the Galileans now believed in Jesus and were accepting Him as Christ. It was a welcoming that was purely due to a fascination with Jesus as a miracle worker and nothing more. John tells us they had seen what He had done in Jerusalem. And they wanted to see more. Whatever faith in Jesus they might have had, John in verse 44 is telling us it was a deficient faith. And the welcoming itself was deficient. But then, he contrasts this deficient faith of the Galileans with an example of true faith, which is the faith of an official from Capernaum. And here we learn several important points about the nature of true faith. First of all, faith is desperate. Faith is desperate. Look with me at verses 46 to 47. So Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee where He had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. This official, because of the title he is given in the text, was most likely a Jewish royal official who worked under King Herod. So this this story that we're reading about is not the same story you find in Matthew chapter 8 about the centurion and his servant. The faith of the centurion. These are two different stories. They're very similar in content, but they're two different events. This royal official found himself in a most desperate situation. His son was about to die from an an illness. Many of you are parents. So I am sure that you can relate to the anguish that this man would have felt. Personally, I have found that I'm able now to empathize with parents who have lost children, tragically, 
or who are going through affliction with children, suffering from deadly diseases and illnesses, I'm much better better to empathize with them now that I have my own children. I read of a story, or I hear from friends of a small child being diagnosed with cancer, for example, and immediately I think about my own and how I would feel if one of them were going through that very situation. If one of my own was diagnosed with a deadly disease, a deadly illness such as cancer, I'd feel helpless. I'd feel confused. Absolutely desperate. And probably, on many occasions, scared out of my mind. What is going to happen with my son or my daughter? This was how the official felt. This was his experience. His son was dying. This was a son whom he loved with all of his heart. Like most fathers, he had great hopes for this son. He probably prayed for this son. He hoped and dreamed that his son would grow up Maybe have children of his own. It was very common in the ancient world that the son would take up the career path, if you will, the occupation of a father. So very likely this father, being one who worked as an official in the royal court, was probably training his son. This is how you conduct yourself. This is how you live. This is what you are going to do when you grow up. He's placing all of his hopes all of his aspirations in his son. As a dad, he's been thinking about the future with his son. Now he finds himself in a situation where his own flesh and blood might be dead. And there's nothing he can do about it. He is in a situation that is as desperate as one could ever know. Yet in his desperation, he does not completely despair. He does not get to the point where he is absolutely paralyzed. He goes to the only one who might have an answer. He travels from Capernaum to Cana, some 20 miles journey. Not by car. 20 miles to find this man Jesus. Not so that Jesus could just show him some neat trick, like turning water into wine, but so that Jesus would save His Son. He's going to Jesus for salvation to come to His house. He goes to Jesus for help. That desperation that He had is part of what true faith consists of. Saving faith is always desperate. There's never an exception. It is always desperate. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 25, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. The backdrop upon which all faith is carried out is always a backdrop of darkness, of our own sin, of the just wrath of God due to us because of our sin. Our rebellion against our Creator only deserves an eternal punishment and it is on that backdrop where we hear the words of God that in Christ can come salvation. And in desperation, knowing that there is nothing that I can do myself to change who I am, to change my desires, to transform this wretchedness that is within. In desperation, we believe the promises of God for life. Faith faith recognizes our utter helplessness due to our sin. And it clings to the only One who can ever help us. Clings to Christ. Is your friend, is your, is your faith, is your faith, friends, a desperate faith? I want you to just think about that for a moment. Ask yourself. This is self-examination. Is the faith that I have a desperate faith? And I ask because there's many kinds of faith out there. Even within church context. There's a faith where faith is almost just like a badge of honor that we wear. Right? It's like my, 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 my card, my identification card. Right? I've professed faith before. Everyone can see it. So I'm good. Is that the kind of faith you have? Or is the faith you have one that sees utter helplessness in yourself? And an absolute Savior in Christ. That is saving faith. Saving faith is always desperate faith. And it sees in Christ and in Christ alone your only hope and your only righteousness. It sees in Christ and in Christ alone the only one who can deal with our greatest problem, which is sin that leads to death. And Christ deals with it by being the one who Himself was raised from the dead, so that as we believe in Him, death will no longer have the ultimate victory over us. It's desperate. Well, faith is not only desperate, friends, but it is also grounded in the words of Christ. It is grounded in the words of Christ. Underline. Words. Words. Words of Christ. Which is to say that the ultimate foundation of faith is not miracles. The ultimate foundation of faith is not signs, not wonders, not dreams, not visions. The ultimate foundation of saving faith are the words of Christ. His promises. In verse 48, the official comes to Jesus hoping that He might come with Him and heal His Son And Jesus says to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And when he says that, he is saying, 
you will absolutely not believe. The, the way he says this in the original is, is italics, bold, underline. You will never in any way believe unless you see signs. This is what he says to the official. Now he's speaking to the official when he says this, but the official is not the only one around. In fact, the word you, and some of you might have a little footnote in your Bibles that indicates this for you, but the word you there is in the plural. Unless you all, if you have a King James, unless ye, unless ye see signs. If you're from the south, like me from Alabama, unless you all see signs. You all see signs and wonders. You all will not believe. Sometimes two people can be talking amongst a group of people. You know this. One person talks to the other, but in a way that everyone else can hear. Talking to one another. We're actually communicating to many other people. That's what Jesus is doing here. He is speaking ultimately to the crowds of Cana as He addresses the official. And He condemns them for their fascination with what they see while they reject what they hear. This is the major difference between the Galileans and the official. The Galileans loved what they saw. They welcomed Jesus so that they could see more. But the official believed in what he heard. Just notice how the passage continues. Verse 49, the official said to him, Sir, which is also Lord, Lord, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. And then notice, the man believed the Word. Believed the Word that Jesus spoke to him. And he went on his way. The official had traveled a very long distance to get Jesus to come back with him. And yet Jesus essentially tells him, No, I'm not coming. You go on your way. Yet he also tells him that as you go, rest assured that your son will live. And the official took that word and that word alone as sufficient. He didn't need to see anything. He didn't come just to see a miracle worked. He didn't need Jesus to be physically present. And why? Because He had His Word. And His Word was sufficient. His faith didn't rely upon signs. It ultimately relied upon the words of Christ. Friends, is that what your faith is grounded upon? Is it ultimately grounded upon the words of Christ? Or does it depend upon something else? Does it depend upon some other spiritual experience? Or some sign you took as a revelation from God? Religious people always have some kind of story to tell about how God especially spoke to them in some experience they had. Very often, this is the actual true basis of their faith and not the actual revealed Word of God. Just this last week, we were on vacation. My uncle was with us and my uncle was 
telling me about a certain man who professes to be a believer. We both know him, but he's not a believer. He has never shown any fruit. The churches that he, are, he is involved in are Protestant, liberal churches. They deny the gospel. They deny the resurrection of Christ. There has never been any evident fruit in this man's life that he has come to know Christ. My uncle's name is Stan. And this man was telling Stan about a spiritual experience he had while peeling a banana. We can chuckle. But these stories are not uncommon. People have spiritual experiences doing some of the most mundane things. The man essentially told him, Stan, I was, I was peeling a banana the other day. And as I was peeling the banana, I, I had a real spiritual moment. As I peeled it back, I saw each layer. And as I just looked at it, it was just a real spiritual time. For me. Now, I don't know exactly what he was experiencing. Certainly, there was a sense of awe that anyone can experience as they observe the smallest parts of God's creation all the way up to the largest parts. It's always an amazing thing to see in the microscope, microscope something as small as a snowflake, see the beauty of God's creation. We can always experience awe as we. Behold God's works. When someone sees a beautiful sunset, they can certainly be amazed by the beauty of God. The Bible is very clear that the heavens declare the glory of God. But there was something my uncle said that stood out to me. He said to me, again, we're talking about someone who is not a believer, who believes himself to be though, He said to me, why doesn't this man ever have spiritual moments like this in the Word? Why does the Word, the revealed Word of God, never encourage this man like that? Never spur him on? Never cause him to praise God? Why does the Word never have that effect? That's a good question, I think. Why is it that some have no problem describing the great spiritual experiences they have had when they observe creation. Or the great spiritual experiences they have had when they have had dreams. Or special visions of angels. Or visions of Jesus. Why is it that so many can become so fascinated with books supposedly written by little boys who traveled to heaven and back? Or adults who traveled to hell and back. And yet, when it comes to the actual, very words of God, the foundation, the rock, that which we know gives life and comes with real power. When it comes to the Word of God, no spiritual moment or memory can be found. Indeed, in comparison to all of these experiences that one may give, the Word of God is a bore. The man who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night is said in the Psalms to be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. His leaf 
does not wither. The word of the Lord is upright, the psalmist says. It is firmly fixed in heaven. It is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It is sweet to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. It is like bread. It is like living water that satisfies me in a wilderness. Can one who has faith hear the words of God, hear the words of Christ, and not believe His words to be just that? Can true faith hear the words of God and not affirm with the psalmist, this is sweet to my soul? The official, the official needed no great sign. And he didn't need Jesus to work a miracle for him before he returned. So he would have some additional confirmation that his words were true. He simply believed them, took them, and went on his way. Because his faith was ultimately grounded on the words of Christ. And that was where his hope was found. Faith is always grounded ultimately, primarily in the words of Christ. Lastly, we see that faith also speaks. Faith also speaks. It is desperate, it is grounded in the words of Christ, and it speaks. In verses 51 and following, the official is returning home. And on his way there, his servants meet him. They tell him that his son is recovering. And he asks them, what time did this happen? And when they told him the time, he knew that it was the exact time when Jesus told him his son would live. He knew in that moment, without a shadow of a doubt, that it was simply the words of Christ that brought life to his son. And notice what it says at the end of verse 53. And he himself believed and all his household. The official was the only one among his household who knew what Jesus said and did. The only one. It was the official alone who traveled to Cana. But we are told here that his entire household now believed in Jesus. Which means that as soon as the official received word of his son's recovery, he began to tell everyone about Jesus. He began to tell them all what this man Jesus had done for their house. Because this is how faith works. friends. This is how it moves from desperation to action. It speaks. And it speaks about the works of God. In fact, it simply cannot contain itself. Faith overflows in testimony about the goodness of God. That is what we see the psalmist doing. That is what we see happening all throughout the Bible. As God saves in miraculous ways. He justifies His people despite their sin. And they praise Him not only to one another, but to the world. They summon all the earth 
to praise God because the Lord is good and all His ways are faithful. So consider, of course, the official that we are looking at. He experiences salvation coming to His house as Jesus gives Him the Word that His Son will live and His Son, in fact, lives. Salvation comes to them and He begins to speak, telling them all what Christ has done. Just a few weeks ago, we were looking at the Samaritan woman. And once it was revealed to her who she was in fact speaking to, that Jesus was the promised Christ, that He was a prophet, that He was a king, that He had revealed to her all she had ever done, she ran to the town and she told them all in that day. And the town began to come out to see who this Christ indeed was. The Samaritan woman, as she believed in Christ, spoke to others about that very truth. Consider as well in John chapter 9, the man who was born blind. man, we are told, was born blind so that the works of God might be manifest in him. You don't get, you don't get any more desperate in a lot of cases than not being able to see for over 30 plus years. That kind of handicap, we know, can be detrimental and can create all kinds of difficulties in life. Not only in the modern world, but most especially had you been blind living in the ancient world. There wasn't health care back then. There wasn't help You're blind, you're poor, and you're hoping for healing. And that's it. And that man in John chapter 9 is then confronted by Jesus. Jesus comes to him and He heals him of his blindness. And what does the blind man do? He now begins to speak and tell everyone who Jesus is and what He has done for him. And one of the things he says, remember, is that I was once blind, but now I see. Now I see. He could not contain His joy and could not contain His testimony about Christ. Does your faith work like this? Has Christ so saved you that your lips cannot be sealed? Was the point of desperation that you experienced before you came to Christ such that now that you have come to know Him as your Savior, you only have a message to tell to the world that Christ saved a wretch like you? Does your faith work itself out like that? I know, I know a lot of times, The fear of man can control our witness. Fear of being reviled. Fear of losing a job. Fear of being rejected. Fear can take hold. But friends, if we have truly come to know that Jesus is a Savior of sinners, that fear should never take hold. And it should never take hold because we know that Jesus has the words of eternal life and the very ones who may indeed revile you can be radically saved by those words. Faith should always result in a testimony 
in words being spoke to those who do not know Christ and who also need the Gospel to come to them. I tell you over this last week, just closing thoughts, I was on vacation, but I didn't stay away from the news. We've had some troubling times in the last week. Controversies over police shootings. Racial tensions that have just increased dramatically. Resulting eventually in 12 police officers and an additional citizen shot. Five of them being killed in Dallas, Texas. I think if any of you have been keeping up with this at all, there's probably been an entire range of emotions. Confusion, sadness, grief, weeping. You look out the landscape, this land, many of you have known for many, many years, you just see darkness. You see division, strife. And it doesn't seem like anything is going to fix what we see. Solution after solution is offered. Every political point is given. And no change seems to be taking place. Racial tensions are increasing dramatically. And this world we live in seems to be one completely filled of nothing but divisions. And for many of us, we are left thinking, what in the world? What in the world can change this? Well, friends, let me tell you, I don't have all the solutions. I don't know all of the different policies that might help. I don't know if it's more police interaction with communities or more communities with police. I don't know what the solutions are, politically speaking, to all of these great issues that we face and that we see and that we experience. But I do know this. The Gospel is the power of God for salvation. And all of those tensions and those divisions, once the Gospel comes and takes root in a heart, it changes the heart from within. It is the Gospel that took divisions between Jews and Gentiles who hated one another and brought them together destroying the dividing wall of hostility and making peace between Jew and Gentile. We know what the ultimate solution is. It is the Gospel that changes hearts. And so friends, in these moments, when we are uncertain, maybe scared and confused about what we see in the culture, recognize you have the message that can bring change and can bring life. Faith has to result in speaking. 
And there is no better message to address the tensions we have now than the Gospel of Christ. Because there's no other message. There's no other law that can change a heart save the Gospel and the Gospel alone. You want to talk about problems of racism? You want to talk about any other problem that is out there? It's ultimately a matter of sin in the heart and the only thing that can transform a sinner is the Gospel and the blood of Christ. You have the message. And now in this opportunity, you have a great opportunity to bear witness to Christ in this desperate moment. When you speak, when you speak with those whom you know in your family, your friends, your co-workers, you can bring this issue up. And it can be a perfect segue into offering the truth of the Gospel. What's your thoughts on the things that are going on right now? Tell me, friend, what's your thoughts? And as that conversation proceeds, you have a testimony of saving grace that transformed a sinner like you. Transformed a person who was blind into one who now sees. To offer to the world. That is the message of the Gospel and the power that is found therein. Friends, we are not a hopeless people. We are, above all, a people with absolute hope in the Gospel of Christ. Let me uh, pray for you now. Father, I rejoice. I rejoice because of what Your Son did for this official. He spoke, Your Son will live. And the Son lived. And so also does He do for sinners. He speaks to them, You will live in Me. Abide in Me and you will have eternal life. And we can have hope and confidence in knowing that just as He raised an official Son and healed Him, just as He raised Lazarus from the dead, and just as He was raised from the grave Himself, we also can be brought out of death into newness of life. Father, we praise You for the hope that we have in the Gospel. We ask, O oh Lord, that your spirit, your spirit would work powerfully within us so that our lips would speak and proclaim the glories and the fame of your name. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.